And the good people are then presented as morally justified to wreak vengeance on the bad people and wipe them out. And we feel justified because the bad people started it, but we finished it. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to Genesis 34, Genesis 34. Uh, we're continuing in the life of Jacob. This will be one of these lessons that will be um, painful to listen to, but extraordinarily instructive to listen to because it is so contemporary. This, this uh, event occurred 4,000 years ago, but you could have read this on the news feed this morning on the net. It's the story of one dad's disastrous decision that results in his daughter's date rape, his son's plot for revenge that leads to mass murder, looting of an entire town, enslavement of surviving women and children, all by God's people. It's a drama. It's really a tragedy in five acts. Let me set the stage for you. Rob's going to show you of the setting. This is a look at the Jabbok River, the city of Succoth, and the village of Shechem, and ultimately down to Hebron. Remember that Jacob was born in Canaan, way down south in, in Hebron and, and Beersheba, and he spent the last 20 years way up north in Haran, uh, out, uh, out in the Mesopotamian region. God, a few years ago, told Jacob to return home to Canaan. So Jacob, his four wives, his 11 sons that we know of, uh, and unknown, uh, unknown number of daughters, huge flocks and herds, have traveled some 450 miles south from Haran to the Jabbok Brook. And the Jabbok Brook, a little river on the east side of the Jordan River. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about he met and reconciled with his estranged brothers Esau. Esau comes all the way up from the south uh, from Edom and Jacob's coming down from the north from through Damascus and they meet and they have this reconciliation and then Esau goes back south to Edom. Jacob travels a little bit west and a little bit north to the little city or village of Succoth, and he takes up residence there. And after some time, he finally crosses the Jordan River to the west and enters into the Promised Land, just as God had told him. Rob's going to show you another map of some of the cities uh, here. Jacob uh, is, at this point in time, only partially obedient. God has told Jacob to meet him at Bethel, which means house of God. And Jacob doesn't want to go to Bethel. Because Esau is down south and Jacob doesn't want to go any further south and he's not really willing to meet his father yet. But God said, you made a vow to me in Bethel 20 years ago and I want you to meet me there. I want you to go to Bethel. And after that, I want you to go all the way south to Hebron and Beersheba, which is even further south, where your father is living. Jacob still fears Esau, even though they've, quote, reconciled. And he's attracted to the economic prospects near the city of Shechem. And so he decides that obedience to God can be procrastinated. By the way, 
As a general principle, procrastinating obedience is always a really bad idea, 100% of the time. So Jacob buys property in the city of Shechem, and he settles down in an area where God does not want him to be. The city of Shechem is on a major caravan route. There's three major caravan routes. Uh, the Via Maris, as Pastor Roger talked about this morning, goes through there. And so there's a lot of trade. There's a lot of rainfall. The pastures grow, and it can support very large flocks and herds. So Jacob has prioritized material wealth more than spiritual health. The city of Shechem, like the city of Sodom, before, 100 plus years before, is economically prosperous, but it's spiritually wicked, right? We have one about five hours of the east here we call Sin City, you understand. And by the way, that's not the only one. There's plenty of that going around. So this city is populated by Canaanites whose moral practices were abhorrent to God. Jacob has chosen to put his family in a position where they will be exposed to evil on a regular basis. Now, as a father, that is one of the all-time worst decisions you can do. One of the things you're going to notice in chapter 34 of Genesis, the name of God is never mentioned one time. And the behavior of the people in this chapter recognizes the fact that they are not thinking about God in any way, shape, or form. This is unfortunately one of the most sordid chapters in the Bible, and yet God chose it to record for our benefit and instruction. So let's pick up the narrative. Scene one. There's five scenes in this tragedy. Scene one. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. He was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Verse 7, Now the sons of Jacob <clears throat> came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. Here's the principle. There are some places we shouldn't go, and some people we shouldn't know. God never intends his people to become intimate with the world. There are some places you shouldn't go. And there are some people you shouldn't know. Because God never intends his people to become intimate with the world. Dinah seems to be the youngest child of Leah. Dinah has six older full brothers and five half-brothers from her father's three other wives, Bilhah, Zilpah, and Rachel. If she was the only daughter in this family, you can only imagine how she was doted on by her 11 brothers. Some commentators suggest that at the time of this narrative, she was probably about 15 years old. Pretty clear that she was lonely for female friends, and she begins visiting other girls about the same age who lived in the city of Shechem. The text simply says she went out, in other words, she left home and went into town. 
We don't know if she was rebellious. We don't know if she was just naive. We don't know if she was ignorant of human nature. We don't know whether her mother Leah warned her, don't go into that town because it's populated with people with different moral values, but we know that she left home and went into town anyway. We're pretty sure that she was not one of Jacob's favorite children because she was Leah's child. And Jacob was all about Rachel and Joseph. Jacob played favorites in his family, and this is one more disastrous example. When you look at Dinah, it seems clear that she needed a lot more affection and attention from dad, and he was not around. What we do know for certain is that the moral standards of the Canaanites in this town of Shechem were vastly different than those of Jacob's family. When you read this narrative, it's pretty clear that unattached single women were considered fair game. And just like today, sexual promiscuity is rampant throughout this region. Dinah must have been very attractive because she caught the eye of the local tribal chieftain whose name was Shechem. The city was probably named after him after this event. And apparently this young man named Shechem was the son of a regional ruler and he was used to getting his way. And this same old story is in the headlines today and it is the same old sin Position, power, wealth, and lust meets naive, young beauty. And the result is predictably catastrophic and disastrous. Dinah was in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong person. Whether her parents even knew about it or not, the text doesn't say. Apparently, Shechem tries to seduce her. When that fails, he takes her by force and rapes her. Verse 26 says something even hard to believe, additionally disturbing. It says that he took her into his own house and kept her there. Now, if he kept her against her will, now we have a problem of kidnapping on top of rape. So this is catastrophically wicked and evil. Unfortunately and terrifyingly, this is so contemporary that it's scary. When you look at this, you realize human nature has not changed one iota but it gives you a picture of the disaster that sin creates in human society. That's one of the lessons we're going to learn from this today. Now, contrary to what you would expect, the text says next that Shechem becomes deeply attached to Dinah. He loves her and he wants to marry her. It says he speaks tenderly to her, attempts to win her affection. He tells his father he wants to marry this young girl and to make it happen. It seems like that this young man is used to getting his own way. His father, Hamor, is the local chieftain. What's very troubling, matter of fact, it's infuriating. Um, I have a saying that is very godless, but it says you want to shotgun this young man into the next dimension. This guy is not ever rebuked by his father. His father, Hamor, never says to his son, what you did was evil. It was wicked. It was sin. It was wrong. There's not a word of condemnation or censure. And apparently, dad sees nothing unusual in his son's behavior. Which tells you, in the Canaanite culture, treating women this way was simply business as usual. In fact, God views it as abhorrent and evil. 
Word gets back to Jacob that his daughter's been raped and is currently being held, but since his sons are in the field, he says nothing about it until the whole family uh, is together apparently that evening. And there's no mention of how Jacob feels. Uh, we don't know. He doesn't say. Uh, the scripture doesn't say. Meanwhile, Hamor is the local chieftain of the town and Shechem's dad. He comes by to speak to, to Jacob about the matter. He doesn't apologize for his son's behavior. There's no mention that he's going to punish his son for this crime. What he offers is a marriage proposal. And if that doesn't knock your socks off, you're not paying attention. In essence, my son, Shechem, who raped your daughter and is keeping her in a house, wants to marry her. How do you respond to something that incredible? I mean, without cursing. A shotgun, yes, I understand. So Jacob and Hamor are talking, and Jacob's sons come in from the field. And when they hear the news, they're both grieved and they're outraged. Their sister has been violated. Obviously, they've absorbed enough moral training from Jacob to know that sex within marriage is sacred, and this sexual assault is wicked. Shechem has crossed a non-negotiable moral line in the sand. He has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. And this is the first time in Scripture that the name Israel is used to describe something other than just Jacob himself. Now we're talking about in Israel being a nation, a people, a group. Apparently, Jacob has told his family about God's promise that his family will become a nation, a great nation. So if Dinah's 15 years old now, her brothers are probably in their late teens and early 20s. And apparently, their anger makes no impact on Shechem's father, Hamor, at all. Scene 2, verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, Jacob and Jacob's family. The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. Verse 9, intermarry with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it, and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, If I find favor in your sight, then I will give whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, but give me the girl in marriage. Here's the principle. Affiliating with evil is evil. Never make a deal with the devil, no matter how attractive the package. And by the way, Satan is very good at making the package very attractive. Affiliating with evil is evil. Never make a deal with the devil, no matter how attractive the package. So Hamor and Shechem are coming by the house, and they're talking to Jacob's family, and Hamor explains... Uh, that Shechem wants to marry Dinah and ask for their consent. And then he broadens the appeal just beyond Dinah and Shechem's marriage. He proposes that Israel's entire clan, his entire family, and his entire tribe intermarry. And he promises them if they do intermarry, the whole land will be theirs. He promises them property in Canaan, grazing rights, commercial benefits, travel freedom. I mean, he's promising them the promised land, which God's already promised to give Jacob, by the way. And when you listen to Hamor discuss this intermarriage and we'll have the whole land and we'll do trade and we'll get rich together, I mean, it sounds like a very attractive proposal, a real win-win arrangement. However, Hamor knows that his people outnumber Jacob's people. 
and his family's larger than Jacob's family, and over time, intermarriage will assimilate Jacob's family into the Canaanite culture. That would be catastrophic. Because God has a plan to create a spiritually pure people from Jacob's family, the Israelites, through whom he's going to send a Messiah to save the world. So this proposal to intermarry is straight from the devil. And it would absolutely derail God's plan for a Messiah. This is not a small item. It's very attractively packaged, but is a massive temptation and it really runs completely counter to what God has a plan and what God told Jacob to do. Now we hear from Shechem. He doesn't apologize either. He doesn't believe it's about rape. He believes it's about money. He, if he only offers a high enough bridal price or dowry, surely Jacob's brothers will consent to their marriage. It's just business. It's not personal. How many of you have ever seen the movie Taken? And the guy who's involved in trafficking says, it's just business. And one of my favorite scenes in this movie, and this is just the flesh talking, is when the hero sends this guy to go see Jesus. It's personal, baby. You touch my daughter, it's personal. I get that. This man does not get that. This seems to have been the tipping point for Jacob's brothers, or, or Dinah's brothers, they're basically saying, this man who just raped our sister believes that her body can be bought and sold like a prostitute. And from this point on, Jacob's sons do all the talking. You never hear from dad. Where's Jacob? He disappears from the dialogue. We don't know if he left the room in distress or he just passively listened to his sons. But his sons take over the conversation. Scene three. Verse 13, but Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you if you become like us in that every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you. And we will take your daughters for ourselves, and we will live with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. I really struggled with what the principle behind this was, because there are a lot of different ways you could go with this, uh, obviously, narrative. But here's the principle. How you behave when you are wronged reveals what you really believe about God. How you behave when you are wronged reveals what you really believe about God. And I will tell you that my flesh does not want to let God handle it. My old sin nature wants to do what Jacob's sons did, which is, I will fix it. And that means you are going to disappear from this planet. That is the flesh and that is sin but that's our old nature who wants to fix it, ourselves. But when we're wronged, how we behave reveals what we really believe about God. Are we really going to let God be God, or are we going to take matters in our own hands? And you're going to find out real soon how Jacob's sons believed. And they are both furious, and they are incredibly clever. 
They lie to Hamor and Shechem, and they justify it on the basis that Shechem has defiled their sister, raped their sister. Three times in this chapter, the word defiled is used to describe Shechem's wicked behavior. Defiled means to make impure or unclean. Defiled means to contaminate or pollute. Defiled means to make common or profane. See, God made sex sacred, holy, and set it apart exclusively between husband and wife. And Shechem's rape was impure, unclean, unholy, degraded, and a direct violation of everything that God made sacred and precious. Dinah's brothers are furious, but they do not act rashly. They do not act in haste. They do not go to war. They plan for war while they pretend peace. They really believe, don't get mad, get even. And they are plotting. And we have no idea where Jacob is in this, but they've actually put a very, very, they put a diabolically evil plan of vengeance in place. And they tell Shechem and Hamar that the only thing that prevents intermarriage is a religious practice of theirs called circumcision. And since the sons of Israel are circumcised, following God's command to Abraham and Isaac, and now Jacob, they cannot give their daughters in marriage to any male who is uncircumcised. And of course, the Canaanites are uncircumcised. So circumcision is presented to these Canaanites, the city people of Shechem, as a religious rite that if it's done, it would make the Canaanites and the Israelites one people and therefore they could intermarry. Now, this was an absolute gross misrepresentation of God's purpose in circumcision. Circumcision was designed by God simply to be an outward sign that you belong to God, that you belong to God and his family. So physical circumcision without a heart commitment to follow and obey God and live up to God's standards was just worthless. I mean, it was a sign. It wasn't a magic rite that made you holy. It was a sign that you belonged to God's family and you were being obedient to him. But Jacob's sons promised this because they had a plan for revenge. One of the hardest lessons from this today is Jacob's silence. This is very, very difficult for me. He was passive. His sons are proposing intermarriage with pagan people. This is completely opposite to the covenant that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and also to Jacob, that he was going to form a spiritually pure people through whom to send the Messiah. This proposal and acceptance by Jacob's family directly contradicted Isaac's command to Jacob, do not marry among the Canaanites, marry someone of your same faith. And of course, today the application is enormously clear. God commands Christians to marry who? Only Christians. Do not be unequally yoked. And we have a culture that has watered that down and said, it doesn't matter. It does matter. I have talked to more heartbroken people who are married to people of not similar faith. You would weep. It creates division. It, you cannot serve two masters. When God says, marry a believer, if you're a believer, that's for your protection and also for your joy. And many, many times we as Christians get impatient with God's timing. We're not going to wait for him to bring us the man or woman. 
we found somebody we like and we're going to do it. And five years later, we wind up in heartbreak and loneliness and we can't believe what happened. God gives us the commands he gives us for our good, for our protection, because he loves us. And I know that we all have family members that have married non-Christians. And they are unequally yoked. And what you can do is pray, 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 and more pray. Love them and lift them up to Jesus that he will reach out. He's reaching out to them that they will open their heart and respond to the gospel and become one in spirit. So Jacob is listening to his sons accept this proposal to intermarry if they just become circumcised. And he says nothing. Apparently, he consents to Dinah's marriage and also consents to intermarriage between his family and the Canaanites, directly counter to God's command on his life. Satan's, one of Satan's primary mechanisms to dilute the power of the gospel is to assimilate God's people with the world, is to assimilate God's people in the world. If you can't stop the gospel and dilute it by tempting God's people to think and act, and behave just like the world acts. See, when God's people behave like the world, when God's people think like the world, when God's people watch exactly the same entertainment as the world, use exactly the same language, and adopt the same business practices and ethics of the world, then any claim that Jesus changes things is a joke. They go, you are no different than me. You behave just like I do. You think like I do. You talk like I do. Your values are the same as I do. What's this Jesus stuff? He's got no power. It hasn't changed you. You behave like me. And at midnight, I know I'm a mess. I'll never admit that publicly. But if you're just like me, then your Jesus is no different than the God I worship, which is the God of self. However, when you follow Jesus, we will be different from the world. And Satan wants us to feel like we need to be accepted by the world. In order to be accepted by the world, we have to behave like the world. And that's where Jacob fell into a trap and all his spiritual power went by the wayside. When we follow Jesus, then his supernatural power works through us and people are attracted to the gospel. So do not be ashamed of the gospel and do not be afraid to be different. The people you're affiliating with in the world that are lost are lost. Why would we follow where they're going? They don't know where they're going. We know where they're going. They're not following Jesus. Amen? Okay. I know I'm on a high horse here. That's okay. We're going to roll. Scene four. Verse 18. Now their words, Jacob's son's words, seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. This young man did not delay to do the thing, that means become circumcised, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was more respected in all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, These men are friendly with us. Therefore let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to live with us to become one people that every male among us be circumcised just as they are circumcised. 
Will not their livestock and all their property and all their animals be ours? Only let us consent to them and they will live with us. All that went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised. All that went out of the gate of the city. <clears throat> Here's the principle. God uses even the plans of his enemies to accomplish his purposes. God uses even the plans of his enemies to accomplish his purposes. So Hamor and Shechem have had this conversation with Jacob's sons. Jacob's sons say, if you become circumcised, then we will intermarry with you. We'll do trade agreements. We'll, we'll pasture together. We'll become one people. And it won't be great. We'll all sit around and sing Kumbaya and get rich together, right? And Shechem wants to marry Dinah so bad that he immediately takes action. Hamor's his dad. He's kind of the chieftain of the village. And he's the son, the prince. They go to their village, the city of Shechem. And uh, they go to the city gate. And by the way, the city gate's kind of city hall. And the gate of the city is where all the civic life took place. That's where the government was. That's where the military was. The gate of the city was really a complex. Uh, you had an outer wall. And then you might have had, uh, in, once you got inside the outer wall, there's a whole complex of government and military uh, and civic offices right inside. You never got inside the city if you were a visitor. You got inside the gate. It was a whole complex of buildings, but you never got inside the city proper. They wanted to keep you away from the heart of the city because they didn't know if you were good or bad. So, but the city gate was where all the action took place. It's where judges sat. It's where judgment was made. It's where business was conducted, etc. So they go to that place. They pull all the people together, and they have a, a city council business meeting. And they say, here's the proposal that Jacob's family has given us. And I don't know, Shechem must have been president of the local chamber of commerce because he says, look, if we get circumcised, this is going to be incredibly profitable for us. Jacob's family is friendly. We want to intermarry with them and they with us. Uh, by the way, all we need to do is get circumcised. No big deal. Uh, if, if we do this, uh, we ultimately will absorb all the property of Israel. So they present circumcision to the local city as a good business deal, right? I mean, we'll, we'll get, you get circumcised, we can do business with them, and we're going to take over all of Jacob's property. Now, we, Jacob had thousands and thousands of flocks and herds, and the Canaanites were obviously motivated by financial gain, and they said, this is a good deal. So all the males agree to this. However, their plan is to destroy Israel through compromise. If you intermarry with us, within a matter of a generation or two, you're going to be like us. You will, in fact, we will become one people. We will not become God followers like you. You will become pagan followers like us. Have you ever noticed that? Anytime Christians become intimate with the world, they're the ones that get converted. See, we, we say, well, if I'm intimate with the world, if I go where they go, if I live like they live, if I do what they do, if I participate in their activities, I can win them to Christ. No, they're going to win you because they're going to talk to your flesh and your flesh is going to go with the flow. I have never yet seen missionary marriages work. I'm going to marry somebody and I'll win them to Christ after we get married. No, it won't work that way. 
If it does, it's only the grace of God, obviously. But the vast majority of the time, compromise with the world means you get compromised. Your testimony get compromises and your behavior and your morality begin to look and feel just like the world. So the Shechemites are stupid. They say if we intermarry with them, they're not going to go to war with us. I mean, their daughters are in our house. Our daughters are in their house. We're related now. You don't go to war with your relatives. Well, I mean, not with swords. You know, I mean... By the way, that strategy has been used by kings for millennia. Political marriage, because if you have a daughter and I've got a daughter and your grandkids are in each other's capitals, you're probably not going to go to war. Your grandkids are over there for heaven's sakes and their grandkids are in your palace. It's called political hostages under another name. But at any rate, so this strategy of Satan to assimilate us, assimilate Christians into the world, is nothing new. He's been trying to do it for generations upon generations upon generations. Interesting. Jacob's sons are sons of their father, which means they're really good liars. Because Jacob is a pro. Which he learned from his father, Isaac, because Isaac lied on more than once about his wife. And Isaac learned to lie from Father Abraham, who lied about his wife on more than one occasion. So Jacob's sons have this deception, both genetically as well as behaviorally, passed through. We talk about the sins of the father's visit. Well, deceit is one of the sins of this family. It's interesting that the Shechemites are also liars. They say, Let's do business together. Our plan is to intermarry with you and we're going to get all your stuff. So that we have two liars lying to each other. And they both believe each other's lies. Interesting. God's going to use both of these liars to accomplish his plans. Scene 5, verse 25. Now it came about on the third day after they got circumcised... When they were in pain, which you can imagine, that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword, came upon the city unawares, and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and that which was in the field, and that which was in the city. And they captured and looted all their wealth, and all their little ones, and their wives, even all that was in the houses. Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have bought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of this land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. Verse 31. But they said, should he treat our sister as a harlot? The number of lessons from just these few verses is profound. I'm just going to focus on one and, and part of another one. First principle. Our circumstances have nothing to do with our safety. 
Jacob's really nervous. I'm not safe. I'm going to be under attack. Our circumstances have nothing to do with our safety. We are safest when we are closest to God through faith and obedience. Our circumstances have nothing to do with our safety. We are safest when we are closest to God. You know, and I was going to end it right there. And the Holy Spirit prompts you and says, you're not closest to God just because you feel close to God. You're closest to God when you trust Him and when you obey Him. That's when you're closest to Him. So the closest to God is conditional on our faith and obedience. Now this is an illustration of taking matters into your own hands. And I will confess to you, there's a part of me that just, my sin nature goes, go get him, baby. Take him out. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. My sin nature loves revenge. That's because I'm sinful. I want justice, and I think my plan is better than God's, and that is complete arrogance on my part. And Simeon and Levi... Payback, rape with deception, genocide, looting, and slavery. They wait until the third day after circumcision. Very strategic. This was all planned. When the pain and the physical limitations are the greatest of the, all the males in the city. And then they go into town on the sly. I don't know if they hid the swords or whatever. And they systematically assassinate every male in town by ambush. And I can imagine they just went from house to house to house the house. It appears, when you read the text, that Simeon and Levi, first of all, go to Hamor's house and Shechem's house and send them to see Jesus, and then they free their sister Dinah, who's been kept, apparently, in Shechem's house. So part of you understands their outrage. Part of you understands why this is so vile. Rape and kidnapping, it's, it's, it's beyond sinful. It's just wicked. Even worse, after all the males are dead and they bring Dinah back to Jacob's household, it seems as though the rest of Jacob's sons join Simeon and Levi and all 11 of them loot the entire city. And the Bible makes it clear that the looting was thorough and comprehensive. I mean, it makes a list of everything they stole. Flocks, herds, donkeys, everything in the field and everything in the city, household goods, including... Women and children. This really implies enslaving these families. We don't know, we don't know whether Jacob's families kept the Canaanite women and children and incorporated them in their families. We don't know whether they sold them off, very common during that era, or they simply let them go to fend for themselves. This is an example of the unplanned consequences of sin. When you read this chapter, one of the things that staggers you and terrifies you is that no sin is isolated. When you read this, Dinah goes to seek friends where she shouldn't have gone because her father Jacob moved the family where he shouldn't have moved them. One little decision. She catches the eye of someone who rapes her, which leads to revenge, which leads to murder, which leads to, we have now entire families whose husbands and fathers have been murdered. And they are orphans and without sustenance. So 
when we look, when God is so adamant not to sin, part of it is because he understands that sin bleeds into everything in our life. The consequences, the ripple effects go beyond not just us. They go beyond not just the people around us. They go generationally. And this is horrifying. And I don't think that Simeon and Levi ever thought about, well, what are we going to do with these families now that we've killed all the males? I think they just wanted revenge. And I guess, well, we'll, we'll think about that later. Sin always has, Pastor Roger said this a hundred times, sin always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. And this is case in point. So Simeon and Levi's motive is moral outrage and revenge for Dinah, but it seems that greed also was part of the motive. Let's get their stuff. We'll kill them all and take it. Let God sort it out later. It's interesting, it's ironic, that the reason the Canaanites agreed to circumcision because they would believe that they would get all of Israel's stuff. You know, we'll get circumcised, do business with them, we'll take all their wealth. What happened is, of course, they lost their lives and all their wealth to the very ones they thought they would conquer. But Simeon and Levi have rebelled against God's sovereignty and God's prerogative for revenge and murdered their enemies. God is very clear, and this speaks to my heart and hopefully to your heart as well. Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge. It doesn't say sometimes. It says never take your own revenge. Why? Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is God's prerogative, not ours. Because only a perfect and holy God will exact perfect justice. When you and I try and even the scales, and we're going to make it right, and we're going to revenge, we're going to, we always screw it up because we're sinners. And our motives are always corrupted. And therefore, our behavior is never perfect. And only God, who is perfect, will exact perfect vengeance. Our problem is, and Levi and Simeon's problem is, they didn't want to wait for God to do it. They were going to do it themselves. And it led to consequences beyond comprehension. Simeon and Levi, and sometimes us, we do not leave room for God's wrath. And when you listen to people discuss or text or, you know, social media, some of their comments are, I hope they die. Let's just kill them all. I mean, the human heart is revealed on social media in some ways that ought to scare us. I mean, people on social media sometimes say what they really are like inside, and you're going, whoa, whoa. Yeah, that's human nature. That's why we need a Savior. We need to leave room for God's wrath, which means that's his business. The results of their taking God's place were catastrophic. Word spread throughout the entire region very quickly that Jacob's sons have murdered an entire town. And by the way, this destroyed whatever testimony Jacob had with the local population. Remember, he built an altar there. And he worshipped God there. People knew Jacob is a follower of Yahweh. Jacob is a follower of God. And then his own sons lie to the locals, and kill them all. So here's a principle. People assume that your God is like you. 
you claim him, you bear his name, you call yourself Christian, they assume that Jesus must be like you. So if you're a local Canaanite, you assume that Israel's God now is, number one, deceitful, because Jacob's sons lied. You assume that he's violent. You assume that he's murdering. You assume that he's a greedy God who really hates people because they behave that way. And we're accountable to represent God accurately so that people will be drawn to the Savior by our behavior like Jesus. When Jacob hears of this, he rebukes Simeon and Levi, but you're left shaking your head. Number one, you wonder where was Jacob when all the killing and looting was going on? Where's dad? We don't know. When Jacob rebukes his sons, he doesn't focus on the moral impact. He never calls into account and says, don't you know that murder is evil? It is against God's law. Never talks about that. He never talks about the spiritual impact on the lost. He never talks about the testimony that he had before the public. He doesn't even focus on the welfare of his own daughter, how's Dinah? He only cares about himself. I want you to look at verse 30. Pull your Bible out look at verse 30. He uses the word me, my, or I eight times in one verse. Now, if this is not a self-centered little whiner, I don't know what is. And I resemble him. He says, you've made my life so miserable. I'm going to be attacked by all these surrounding people. I don't have enough people to defend myself. You make me stink before them. He fears again. He's back in fear because he's forgotten prom God's promise to protect him. The truth of it is Jacob is never safer. You and I are never safer than we're walking with God. I mean, look, look at Jacob's history. God's already protected him from Laban. God's already shown him a camp of angels. Remember at Mahanaim, they're walking into the land. God opens his eyes and shows him a whole camp of angels that are there to protect him. God changes Esau's heart from revenge to forgiveness. God blesses Jacob with a new name of Israel and a new status with God. So God has got a history with Jacob, and Jacob has forgotten it all and thrown it overboard, and he's terrified now that these people are going to attack him. And his son's only answer to his rebuke is one question. Should he treat our sister as a harlot? In other words, revenge for her rape justifies murder, slavery, looting, and everything. Done. That's their moral equation. And if you watch any contemporary movie, almost all of them have the good people versus the bad people, right? And the bad people do something morally outrageous to the good people. This goes back to spaghetti westerns. And it's the same thing. And the good people are then presented as morally justified to wreak vengeance on the bad people and wipe them out. And we feel justified because the bad people started it, but we finished it. Right? And we're morally presented as that is acceptable because they started, but we're going to take care of business. We're going to do the right thing, and we're just going to kill them all. And you follow the movies. I mean, this, this theme, I don't care whether it's a Star Wars theme or a Spaghetti Western theme, over and over and over. It's revenge is justified, morally justified, based on the bad things that they do. 
Now, Jacob's dad here has failed his family on multiple levels. He led him into spiritual danger. God told him to go to Bethel, but he disobeyed and settled outside Shechem. Jacob is motivated by money and fear of his brother, so he moves his family near wicked people. That would certainly influence him. And they were going to be assimilated into the pagan culture, just a question of when. You've all heard the story of the frog in the beaker. You know, you can't put a frog in a frying pan because they jump out. But if you put a frog in a beaker of water and you turn the temperature up really slowly, the frog's not aware that the temperature is going up and up and up and up and up. But when they wake up, they're boiled, right? Actually, they don't wake up. They just go to sleep and they get boiled. <laughs> that is Satan's strategy for you. Your and my grandparents and great-grandparents would not believe the stuff that you watch on television, on the Internet. They would be, un be they would believe it. They would say, how can you watch that stuff? That's pornography or whatever you want to call it. But they would look and they would be appalled. And we consider it as normal because we are in the beaker. And the temperature's been going up a degree, a degree, a degree at a time. And we think it's normal. Well, Grandpa, Grandma might have lived with 150 degrees and we're at 211, but we don't see any bubbles. And we go, well, it's nowhere near boiling. There's no bubbles. Well, one more degree, 212, now there's bubbles. So we have grown to tolerate evil and become comfortable with it because the culture tolerates it. And that is Satan's strategy for your life. To assimilate you and desensitize you and I to evil so that we become comfortable with it. These are children of the promise. These are sons of Jacob whom God's going to bring the Messiah. And they're really okay with murder because he had it coming. We are not so different from them. Jacob put his family in the world's beaker when he chose to live to Shechem, move to Shechem. He's responsible because he put them in a situation where they're going to be exposed to evil on a regular basis. I'm utterly intrigued that he never once prays for guidance. Lord, where do you want me to go? Well, God already told him to go to Bethel. You don't have to pray for guidance when God already gave you a command. Just do it. So he doesn't ask. By the way, once Dinah becomes raped, you don't ever hear, hear, ever hear anything about him praying, Lord, what do you want me to do? My daughter's been assaulted. What do you want me to do? What should we do in this situation? He doesn't lead. He's passive. And so his sons take over and they commit genocide. You know, the application here is pretty simple, but difficult. Choose your environment with much prayer. Every environment. And you say, well, I don't go to those places. No, but Satan pipes that garbage right into your home through your electronic devices. You don't have to go there. He'll send it to you for free. All you have to do is tap and no one will know. Yeah, it's recorded forever. We're all influenced by our environment. We are all influenced by our environment. So choice of environment is critical, and you and I are responsible about who we allow to influence us. If I asked you who's got you influenced, you know what the most profoundly scary answer is? The things in this culture that have you the most influenced, you're unaware of. You're unaware of. It's all underwater. 
When you go and you tap on your phone and they're going to send you news stories, you know, just trending news stories, who selects the news stories? Who edits it? What's going on in the world that I don't know about because they don't put those stories online? So you're reading what somebody else has decided you will read and you think you've got news. No, you've got edited news. You've got edited reality because it's so convenient. We assume, well, that's how, I mean, that must be what's going on. No, that's what somebody decided you're going to think because that's what they put in front of you. We have to show discernment. And we need to hang out with people who are moving in the same direction. We as parents, we're responsible to know who's influenced our children. And I know you're not in charge of your grandchildren, many of you, but we're responsible to know who's influenced our grandchildren. As God's people, your best friend should always be God's people. Here's the principle. This is profoundly true. He who walks with wise men will be wise. But if you hang out with fools, you're going to be a fool. Right? You're going to suffer harm. They always say birds of a feather flock together. And if smart people hang out with wicked people, what happens to those people? They become wicked. It's intriguing in all this. God is never the author of evil, but God uses all things, in evil, including evil, to accomplish his purposes. We all know Romans 8, 28, God causes all things right. Now, if you go back to this tragedy, let's spend two minutes dissecting it. There's participants, and every participant in this, in this tragedy has a point of view and a plan. Jacob fears Esau. Jacob wants more wealth, so he disobeys God and moves his family next to a wicked city. Dinah's purpose is to have fun with her friends, and so she leaves home and goes into a place where she shouldn't be. Shechem's plan, like the world, is sexual pleasure now. By seduction or coercion, doesn't matter. I want what I want, and I'm going to take it. Hamor's plan is I want to intermarry with these people so I can assimilate them and assimilate their wealth. It's all about the money. Jacob's son's plan is very simple. Deceive them, lie to them, kill them, get all their stuff, uphold the family honor, and feel morally righteous about it. The local Canaanite in the city, their plan is we're going to follow Hamor and Shechem because we want to be wealthy. And in all this human drama, where is God? Where's God? He's not mentioned one time. Does that mean he's absent? No one prays to him. He's not absent. Jacob has disobeyed God. He's compromised with evil. He is being assimilated into the culture. The process has started. He's consented to the intermarriage of his family with people who are following Satan. By the way, we say it doesn't matter. You're either following God or you're following Satan. And everybody in your life is either following God or they're following Satan. One of the two. There is none of this. Well, I haven't made my mind up yet. You've already made your mind up. You're on one of those two paths. This is really binary. Jacob's compromising with people that are following Satan. And God says, I'm going to set you apart as a pure people. I'm going to send the Messiah through you. This is going to be hard for you to hear. God uses... The evil of Levi and Simeon to prevent Jacob from intermarrying with the Canaanites. God's not the author of this evil. They are. But God causes all things, including human evil, to work together for good. He's going to use that evil to prevent Jacob from intermarrying with the Canaanites. Because after this murder, the rest of the Canaanites want nothing to do with him. 
And so far, Jacob has been unwilling to leave this city because he's getting rich there on his own. So God uses his son's disobedience and disaster circumstances to put a pitchfork in Jacob's spinal column and get him out of Shechem and down the road to Bethel where he's supposed to be in the first place. Have you ever noticed that God can arrange your circumstances to move you in a direction? It'd be interesting to go back at those circumstances in your life and say, what was God's purpose in allowing that to happen to me? He's your father and he loves you. And he arranges circumstances to move you where he wants you to be in the same way he allowed evil to occur in order to move Jacob where he wanted to go. And when you read the news and you observe human evil, it's easy to look and say, where is God? And when your circumstances are hard, and we all have hard ones, it's easy to say, where is God? I'll tell you where God is. You know him, he's in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. He hasn't moved. Now, we may be not listening to him, but he hasn't moved. Every time you read the news and you read of some disaster, some mass murder, some catastrophe, some foolish political decision, every circumstance on planet Earth, God is going to use to accomplish his divine purpose. So when you read about that, don't let your blood pressure get up. Don't think you've got to take matters in your own hands. Don't think you're, it's going to be worth getting you know, furious about God is in control. And we are to wait on his time to accomplish his divine plan. Next week, you're going to see, Lord willing, verse chapter 35, God has a face-to-face -face encounter with Jacob at Bethel that will change the direction of his life once again. Let's review and then Tom will come and lead us in prayer and praise. Number one, there are some places we shouldn't go and some people we shouldn't know. God never intends his people to become intimate with the world. Number two, affiliating with evil is evil. Never make a deal with the devil, no matter how attractive the package. Number three, this it convicts Brad, I've got to confess. How you behaved when you are wronged reveals what you really believe about God. Number four, God uses even the plans of his enemies to accomplish his purposes. And number five, our circumstances have nothing to do with our safety or security. We are safest when we are closest to God through faith and obedience. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.